Shelton said something about a gripping opening line to a book, and, and here we have the most gripping of all. We, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Are you a science person, somebody who takes science seriously, or are you a Bible person, somebody who takes, who has a high view of the scriptures and takes the Bible seriously? Uh, You probably have never had it pointed or, or said to you quite that uh, directly, or maybe you're in those exact words, but oftentimes that's the way it's presented to us. It's in you know, either or terms, largely because Bible and science uh, are part of America's culture wars, and so we're, we're, we have these two set against one another is that we have to choose. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe you do have to choose between the two. Maybe they are irreconcilable opposites, but I doubt it. It seems to me the Bible and science end up answering two fundamentally different questions. Now, science attempts to tell us how the universe came into being. And the scriptures, you know, they tell us why the universe came into being. Why is there a universe? You know, so, okay, let's go back to the, the how first. Science's version of the how, I I don't know if you've studied it recently, but their version of the how is, it's fascinating. 14 billion years ago, all of the mass of the universe was contained in a spot smaller smaller than the period at the end of the sentence in your bulletin. All of the mass of the universe was an infinitely dense, dimensionless point And then what happened, according to science? It exploded. And physicists will tell you they can go back nearly to the beginning, to that moment of the explosion, all the way back to one-tenth of a millionth 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 of a second after that boom took place. And ever since then, the universe has been expanding at this incredible rate. As the temperatures began to drop from the explosion, the nuclei and the atoms, which were entirely helium and hydrogen, began to form matter, which began to coalesce under the force of gravity. Five billion years ago, our sun was formed as the recoalescence of energy. And then four, four billion-ish years ago, the earth forms. Uh, how was the moon formed? Well, science says the moon was formed when a meteorite the size of Mars you know, hit Earth on a glancing blow and tore the big chunk of, uh, of Earth away from it. Whether or not you agree with the way that science explains the how, and how is a very important question, but it can't tell you why. Does science really do a very good job of telling you why this is here? Why did it all get here? I I would suggest that 
why questions are actually the more important questions for us to ask as humans. Because in the why, we are, we're trying to figure out, why is this life worth living? What does this life mean? Why is life precious? Why do we hold on to life so tenaciously that most of our medical expenses in this country are spent on the last week or, or months of life? Um, what, why, is, why do we fall in love? Is love real? Or is it just a chemical cocktail in our brains? Why do we cry so hard when someone dies? Um, why is there something rather than nothing? See, science, as good as it may be, it, it can't answer those questions. I'm excited. We're going to start a new sermon series today. You see it in the uh, column of your bulletin, where we're going to look at the overarching story of the Bible and in doing so, answer many of the why questions. We'll spend several weeks in the beginning of Genesis, and then several weeks in the book of Romans, and then several final weeks at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see how this overarching story answers many of the why questions. Creation, which we'll cover here, and then the fall, what happened to this world to make it as the way that it is now. Redemption, how is God putting the world back together? And what is the hope of the future? Recreation. And I think, by God's grace, this overarching story, trying to keep, sort of see the forest in the middle of the trees, will um, be useful for a lot of people from a lot of different religious and spiritual backgrounds. So that being said, let's go back to verse 1. In the beginning... When God was creating the heavens and the earth. Have you ever noticed the picture that's given here? What is the earth like in verse 1? It's this formless, watery mass. Kind of like a watery lump of clay sitting there. And you say, well, sitting where? Where? Where is that? Is that in the middle of outer space? This watery mass that is full of chaos and there's darkness God has to intervene into this and form from the chaotic something beautiful and something useful. How does God do that formation? He does it by speaking the word. You know, when the word is spoken, realms are created. So when the word is spoken, you get the realms of light and day. And then in day two, you get the realms of sky and sea. Day three, you get the realms of, uh, of land and sea. So when the word is spoken into the formlessness, all of a sudden you have these life-giving realms, which then in, verse, in days four through six, he fills those realms with, with creatures, with rulers, the sun to rule the day, the moon to, to rule the night. So the, it's the creative word of God that's spoken, which, uh, which brings it into existence. What else can we notice from verse 1? Uh, well, Genesis begins by presupposing God's existence. Uh, it, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, obviously it doesn't start out with philosophical proofs that's uh, giving us uh, proofs for the existence of God. Have you ever been asked this question by one of your children, maybe a, a precocious five-year-old? Have they ever asked you this question? Where did God come from? Ah, where did he come from? We are inclined to say, well, he's always existed. But what does it mean for someone or something to always 
exist. It's rather difficult to comprehend the meaning of a sentence like that. You know, sometimes we answer the question by saying that God, he's always existed because he's outside the confines of time and the fixed confines of space which is actually a pretty good answer because ever since Einstein's theory of relativity has shown us that, uh, that time can be altered, when you have objects that are traveling at an extremely high speed, time can be slowed down or sped up. Ever since then, it's become fairly clear that things might operate outside the confines of fixed time. Well, what about the confines of, of fixed space? Um, where... Where does the universe end? Can you get in your mind, you probably can't, but get in your mind that point out there where the universe ends. Well, what's then beyond it? See, we, we, with finite minds, we, we think in terms of there must be an end somewhere, but then there must be something behind that somewhere. There must be something outside of, the, of fixed, uh, fixed space. And if you try to say that in answer to your five-year-old's question, you're going to get them quite confused. Here's how I would answer little Johnny or little Susie's question. Um, What's amazing about God is that he is unlike anybody who we have ever known. Uh, He's like us, but he's, he's not like us. He's unlike anything because he has no beginning and he has no end. You know, we have beginnings and ends, We have birthdays, and we have funerals. But God, the Bible says, is eternal. He is eternal and everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. According to Genesis, God was already there, and because God is the only one or only thing that has no beginning, therefore everything else finds its origin and existence in him. And specifically, finds its origin and existence in his life-giving creative voice. The voce dei, the word that is spoken. I'll be honest, I, I have a hard time seeing how the alternatives people give us to belief in God, the alternatives to theism, help uh, us do any better in answering those questions. You, you probably know that some very intelligent people postulate that the universe has eternally been experiencing you know, a, a great expansion, a big boom, followed by a big crunch. For always, eternally, the, the universe has basically been an accordion, going out and in, out and in, and out and in. Um, or then the other really popular theory out there is that there are an uh, infinite number of universes we just so happen to be in one of an infinite number of universes and potentially an infinite number of dimensions, when I read things like that, and they say it much more articulately than I have, but when I read things like that, I think, doesn't it take even more faith to believe that than it does to believe in God? To believe that he exists? The vast majority of our fellow human beings on earth, well over 95% of the human race, professes some form of theism. Um, I, I hope you, if you're one of those people, you're like, I, I don't know, I can believe in God. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an agnostic, or I'm, I'm an atheist. I hope you realize that 
agnosticism and atheism are almost exclusively the purview of educated elites. You maybe have heard the expression before that there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, you could expand that to say that there are no atheists in the slums of Bangladesh, and there are no agnostics in the trash heaps of India. Agnostics and atheists are mostly educated white people who live in the comfortable chairs of middle class and upper class society, or who, who walk down the, the ivory towers of academia. Now, when seven billion of your fellow human beings are at least in partial agreement on a topic, maybe there's something to be said for the collective wisdom of humanity. Hopefully you're following me still. Uh, (laughs) This leads me to a second and much more important question. So we asked the question, uh, where did God come from? Uh, The second question is, what was God doing before the creation of the universe? That's a very, very important question. Because if you can answer that question, it goes a long way towards answering the question, why is there a universe? And what is this God like? So what was God doing before the creation, uh, the creation of the world? Did you realize that Jesus Christ explicitly answers that question? I never realized that until this week, but there is a place in the Gospel of John where Jesus explicitly says, John seventeen twenty four. we read, quote, He says, before the creation of the world, Father, before the creation of the world, Father, you loved me. Ponder that for just a moment, please. Before God ever created, before he ever ruled, before he was ever, before anything ever happened, before anything else, God was a father loving his son. Now, I dare say that is not the ordinary concept people have. If we were to go and interview somebody on the street and ask them, tell me, you say you believe in God, tell me what that God is like. That's not what they would say. What would it mean for God and the the Father and the Son to to have an eternal relationship of, of love before there was ever any creation? Well, the Gospel of John also tells us that. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 18, here is how Jesus describes that sort of pre-existing eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. He says, it says, this is John writing, it says, the the Son was in the bosom. Literally, this is how it reads. The Son was in the bosom of the Father. We don't use the word bosom very much anymore, do we? Uh, What is the image? Uh, let's say, for instance, you just lie down, you're lying on your bed, or you're lying on your couch. And how many people are out there in the world who could walk up and lay down, stretch, stretch out beside you, and lay their head right up against your chest? Very, very few people. In my case, the, the, only, the only people who could lay down beside me and lay their head up against my chest would be my wife and my f- five kids. Uh, even if, if my best friend did that, you know, that would be creepy. I would, uh, I would clock him, right? See, this picture, this picture, uh, this posture 
of having one's head up against another person's bosom. It's a, it's a picture of, of such intimacy and primacy of relationship. I love this. I, I was thinking about it. We can't conceive, can we, of, of God before the creation of everything? Our little finite minds can't get, we can't wrap around that. So what does he do? He gives us a simple picture, a magnificent photo, like behind the scenes image of what it was like. I was blown away when I thought about that. How magnificent. That's not how people think of God. Did you know in the aftermath of World War II, people started analyzing the speeches of Adolf Hitler uh, and in doing so, they found that Hitler, who I don't think Hitler was actually a theist, but he did speak about God. And almost every time Adolf Hitler spoke about God, do you know what he called him? He called him the Almighty. Why do you think he would do that? Because, because raw power is what he conceived of when he would think about God. And that's the very thing that he wanted in this world. No, 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 no. The, If God is entirely the Almighty, that misses God in a terrible way. The most foundational thing about God is he is a father with a son near his heart. Because that's when you have your head laying against somebody's bosom, it's laying right against their heart. Who together with the Holy Spirit form this ring, um, this this three-person ring of inseparable and glorious joy. Yeah, it's going to take us a little while to get used to this room, and it's going to take me a little while to get used to standing here. The um, sight lines are totally different, and the lights are totally different. Um, You saw when you walked in, probably, that we have a book table, and what we'll be doing is selling books at cost— I think we're able to get a discount on those books, so we'll sell the books at cost to you. Uh, One of my favorite books that is on the table back there is, it's Reeves, is it Michael Reeves, Brian? Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, an Introduction to the Christian Faith. Uh, Highly recommended if you've never read it before. But here's Reeves as he's he's talking about, he's pointing out that if God is eternally a father, that means that he was already giving life before there was ever a created world. If I have a dog whose name is Max, you don't know much about the dog. You don't know what kind of breed he is. You don't know what kind of temperament he has. But if you call somebody a father, a father tells us something about them, doesn't it? A father is one who gives life. And if God was eternally a father, then that means he was eternally giving life to and delighting in a son. He goes on, The Father is a fountain of love, ever bursting out with life and love. Indeed, the Lord calls himself the spring of living water in Jeremiah 2.13. And just as a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the Father, to be a father, must give out life. That is what he does, because that is who he is. That is is his most fundamental identity— He is love expressed towards his eternal son. And it is that love between father, son, and spirit that gave birth to the universe. There are hints of this in Genesis 1-1 itself. I don't know if you caught this, but there are hints of the Trinity there. So in the beginning, there was 
Elohim, God. And then we, uh, who's the other character we find here? We find this person called the Spirit hovering over the waters of chaos, the Spirit of God. And again, what brings all of it into being? It's the Word. So you have the God, the Father, God the Word, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together operating in, even in Genesis 1-1 to bring about this world. You notice it doesn't, it does not say in the beginning God was alone and God was bored and God didn't have anybody to talk with or play with. He didn't have anything better to do with his free time, so he decided to create the world. No, the whole Christian understanding is that it was the overflow of this eternal relationship of love. It was like, shake the, shake the chalice, and love spills out, and it creates a universe. Uh, there's one other way that I'd like to illustrate this to you. Um, we have all been in a situation where we walk into a, a social setting, and we feel entirely on the outside. You walk in, everybody seems to know everybody else, and people are in, oftentimes, we, we actually stand in a circle with each other. And we, we're laughing together, sharing stories together. All of us know that terribly awkward feeling of being on the outside, but I don't have a place here. Isn't it? It's very rare for someone to notice you on the outside, isn't it? It's very rare if you've got five people together who are uh, just having a great time talking it's so rare for one person to catch you out of the corner of their eye and, and say, come in. And, I, and not only take you in, but share their jokes with you and share their stories with you and hear your stories. It's so rare. But see, that is exactly what is happening. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are saying, let's expand our ring. Instead of there being just three of us, let's have all of this. Amen? That's what they, that's what's going on in creation. Uh, so, okay, finally, what are the implications of believing this, and how did, would this affect the way that we live our lives? First off, if you believe this, it affirms something you already know, and that is regardless of your religious background, regardless of what faith you come from, this explains why underneath you know love is the foundation of the universe. See, if, if God were three, were not three persons, but just one person, as a lot of people conceive of him, and as actually the second largest religion in the world conceives of him, conceives of him Allah, it's kind of hard to imagine why would Allah create anything? If Allah was a bachelor for all of eternity, why does, why does any unipersonal God ever decide to create, create anything? And the only answer that has been given to that question is a, a God like that would only create as a way to satisfy their own neediness. So in the Babylonian creation myth, the reason that Marduk creates the universe is because he needs slaves to worship him. <laughs> and so he creates all of this so that he would have worshiping slaves. But God has no such neediness. Um, it's so heartbreaking. We read stories on the, on the news of how somebody in the name of Allah will strap explosives to their chest and walk into a wedding party and blow everyone up at the wedding and say, I do this for your honor and your glory. Why does that happen? 
part of the answer is because love is not intrinsic to Islam. Allah never claims to be intrinsically love. No, no Muslim would say that Allah is love because he's not and he never claims to be. And no Hindu would say that the gods themselves are intrinsically loving. Nobody in the caste system on the streets of, of India today would say that the gods are love because they are not. The only God that is intrinsically love is our God. That's the C.S. Lewis quote on the front of your bulletin. You know, the, people seem not to notice that the words God is love has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person, and that love is what gave birth to everything else. Okay, second implication. If you believe this, it highlights, again, something you already know, but it, it reinforces it. This is why relationships and community matters so much. Um, why do humans shrivel up if they're not being loved by another person? Why are lives destroyed if they don't get daily exposure to love? It's because we've been made in the image of the triune God. He's imprinted that upon us, and he's imprinted on us the need for community. Why is it that men who struggle with sexual addiction don't get well on their own, but only in community with other men, praying for each other, holding each other accountable, loving each other? Uh, only then do they find powerful breakthroughs, because only in community can it happen. Why is it that people with substance addictions go to celebrate recovery, which I think they have one uh, right across the street here, uh, and they find strength to deal with their eating disorders, their substance abuse, because we were made for community. If you, if you go on just living as a solitary individual and make life all about your agenda and your happiness, you'll be lost at sea without community. There's a lot more I could say about that. Um, and I will, hopefully, as we make our way through the rest of this sermon series. Uh, next Sunday, we will discuss the remainder of the creation days in Genesis 1. We'll cover the age of the earth, the topic of evolution. Did Adam and Eve really exist? Um, I've got my work cut out for me if I tell you I have to do all of that. But I, I really—actually, I, yesterday I told my kids that that's what we'd be talking about over the next several Sundays. And they said, Dad, why would you do that in a brand new facility? Uh, isn't that risky? To, but see, those are, those are the questions that everybody asks when they come to the beginning of Genesis. If we're going to be honest about the text, we've got to ask, ask and answer those questions. I'll close with this. Do you remember the image of— So in 1990, Carl Sagan asked NASA to point— the cameras on the Voyager spacecraft back at Earth and take a photograph of our planet from a distance of four billion miles away. Do you, the image of that is, is quite iconic. So even if you can't think, picture it in your mind right now, I'm sure you've seen it. The resulting image shows the Earth is this insignificant little speck in the midst of a sea of empty blackness. Uh, maybe you've heard this objection before. Because the universe is so big, it's impossible to believe that God would care for us here on earth. Uh, the objection, people say, you realize that this whole universe is just filled with empty space. 
It's black, it's dark, 99.999% of it is inhospitable, absolutely inhospitable to any kind of life. So Carl Sagan goes on. When you see the earth just as a tiny speck of light, the posturings of our self-imagined importance and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by the tiny point of pale light demonstrating that our planet is nothing more than a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And he concludes, our obscurity in this vastness demonstrates that we humans are very, very alone. See, I would say the delusion is that we're very, very alone. And that delusion is challenged by a pale point of light hanging over Bethlehem that guided some men some 2,000 years ago. In the beginning was the Word. Through the Word, all things were made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as the, of, as the only begotten of the Father. That light has shone into this world, bringing with it grace and truth. Amen.